It's Wednesday the 27th of January 2021, day three of the Davos Agenda Week, and this is Radio Davos. Today, a flavour of the action from day two. In a world where polarising opinions are the loudest, it is a short step from crude conspiracy theories to the death of a police officer. And unfortunately, the storming of the Capitol Hill showed us how just true that is. And a look ahead to day three, where the focus is the environment. Just this last year, 2020, there was a record 29 tropical storms in the Atlantic. Meteorologists ran out of alphabet letters to name them. And we'll have an interview with this former central banker, who is now trying to get trillions of dollars out of old polluting assets and into areas where they might be able to tackle climate change. With climate, there is very little time. There is limited carbon budget. We've left it very late. It's a critical year for climate. Join me, Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum, and my co-host today, Ryan Heath of Politico, and follow all the action live at wf.ch slash Davos Agenda. From the Davos Agenda Week, this is Radio Davos. Hello and welcome to the Davos Agenda Week. This is day three. Every day this podcast is looking ahead to the main events on the programme, the big issues, the big names, and we hope one or two big ideas. I'm joined today by a co-host from New York. Is that where you are, Ryan? Uh, That is indeed where I am. This is Ryan Heath, Senior Editor at Politico. Tell us something about yourself, Ryan. I grew up in Australia, but I'm a Belgian now as well. And I actually worked as a climate spokesperson for Kevin Rudd, uh, who was uh, uh, the Prime Minister of Australia once upon a time. Uh, uh, But since then, I've been a a speechwriter working at the EU, UK Cabinet Office, and I've been a journalist at Politico for six years now. And do you have any experience of Davos? I believe you do. Oh, yes. I've been seven times. Uh, I used to go with the European commissioners and and then I wrote a fun little newsletter called the Davos Playbook for a few years, which I I think got a few hairs standing on the back of a few people's necks, but it was all in good fun. Well, let's see if we can get any hairs standing up today. Before we dive into day three, let's hear a couple of clips from day two. Amid the doom and gloom of the pandemic, some people are predicting a big upturn in economic growth as we come out, potentially later this year. This is Barclays CEO, Jez Staley. I think there's a chance in our current view at at Barclays is you could have quite a robust second half to this year. If you go back to the Spanish flu, probably the greatest pandemic of the century, what that led to when it finally got arrested was the Roaring Twenties. And there was just an explosion of demand uh, coming out of that. You look at the balance sheet of a JP Morgan or a a Barclays, there's just enormous stored up purchasing power. Consumers are decreasing their borrowing and, and increasing their deposits. Small corporates are doing the same thing. And there's just a huge amount of pent-up potential consumer and business demand, which once the virus begins to be dealt with, could in fact actually do pretty strong economic growth. On day two, we also had speeches from the leaders of France and Germany, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel. And we also heard from the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, who expressed strong opinions about the potential dangers of social media. The business model of online platforms has an impact and not only on free and fair competition, but also on our democracies, our security, and on the quality of our information. And that is why we need to contain this immense power of the big digital companies. And Ursula von der Leyen 
allowed herself a moment of nostalgia for last year's Davos, which actually was in Davos, in the ski resort in the mountains, where political and business leaders rub shoulders with journalists and activists. The dangers that social media poses to our democracy were also already discussed in Davos. I remember sitting in a basement restaurant of my hotel with, among others, the business journalist Rana Forohar and uh, the former Google developer Tristan Harris. And you might have seen some of them in the documentary, The Social Dilemma, I can only recommend it. At that time, the activists warned about the business models of big tech companies and the consequences for our democracy. And they described how the economic laws of social media are eating away at the fabric of our society and how fake news by algorithm spread six times faster than real news. So I thought it might be worth talking to someone who was there in that basement restaurant in Davos with the head of the European Commission. So I called Rana Foruha, financial journalist for the Financial Times and CNN, and asked what she remembered of the encounter. The meeting that Tristan and I had had with her last Davos. Um... Is, is that a typical, are you a Davos um, kind of veteran? Have you been to many of them? <laughs> I think I'm coming up on like 20 years. I, I, I've lost count. Wow. Okay. And so that's just an average night out in Davos, hanging, hanging out with the president of the European Commission in a basement. Cool night out for me. And not all the nights are that good. But you know, Davos is, you, know, you do find yourself in a basement with the head of the European Commission. It happens. <laughs> so it obviously made a big impression on her. What, what do you remember about the conversation? Oh, golly. Well, um, you know, I had been in touch with Tristan for a number of months uh, leading up to that. Um, Tristan, as you know, is the head of the Center for Humane Technology. And at the time, he had left Google, where he had been um, the chief ethics officer. And he teamed up with someone named Roger McNamee, um, who wrote a book called Zucked, uh, which is uh, also covering some of the issues of privacy, monopoly power, problems with big tech. And the two of them had come to see me at the FT um, to really help connect the dots between um, things that were being spoken of at that point in sort of siloed conversations, issues of privacy, issues of monopoly power, um, the compatibility of surveillance capitalism with uh, liberal democracy. And so, you know, and then the details of how are we going to tax these firms? How are we going to um, deal with creating a transatlantic framework around uh, digital tech regulation? All those things were sort of beginning to tape shape in my mind. Um, I had written my book, um, Don't Be Evil. And so Tristan and I were going around and talking to different um, folks together in Davos. And Ursula von der Leyen and, and Marguerite Vestager, the competition commissioner, are particularly interesting because I think that they have a real 360 view of how you can't silo those conversations anymore. And so what I remember in particular, we were beginning to talk about um, European values around things like privacy and uh, uh, liberal democracy and uh, equality and inclusion and sustainability and how might those things 
be compatible or incompatible with existing trade frameworks and existing tax frameworks and this new world uh, tripolar world or bipolar world uh, in which you've got Chinese style state capitalism existing with laissez-faire US capitalism and uh, European uh, style markets and you know how how can those things exist together and what I think really I remember is uh, we all agreed that there was going to have to be a really fundamental uh, rethink of, of some of the existing structures, market structures, um, political structures to to kind of make it all work. So do you think you managed to influence policy on, on <laughs> over dinner? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, you know, I think it was I, I, I wouldn't flatter myself to say that I'd influence policy, but I think that um, I think it was interesting for all of us, particularly Tristan and I coming from the U.S., speaking to President von der Leyen, coming from a very European perspective to share views. But bringing those two conversations together um, is really valuable. And I think that that's, that's what we were really trying to do that night. Journalist and author Rana Faruha remembering an evening in Davos last year. Her book is called Don't Be Evil, How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us. And I'm sure we'll be hearing from her again in future podcasts when we return to this issue. Now to day three of the Davos Agenda Week, where the focus is the environment, particularly climate change. Yesterday on Radio Davos, we heard from climate activist Greta Thunberg. Let's listen back to a clip of that. Right now, more than ever, we are desperate for hope. But what is hope? For me, hope is not more empty assurances that everything will be all right, that things are being taken care of and that we don't need to worry. For me, hope is the feeling that keeps you going even though all odds may be against you. For me, hope comes from action and not just words. And for me, hope is telling it like it is, no matter how difficult or uncomfortable that may be. Greta Thunberg reading a statement for Radio Davos. And talking of inconvenient truths, speaking at two sessions of the Davos Agenda today will be Al Gore, a former US vice president turned climate activist. This is Al Gore speaking at Davos last year. This crisis, the climate crisis, is way worse than people generally realize. Way worse. It is getting worse still way faster than people realize. The burden to act that is on the shoulders of the generation of people alive today is a challenge to our moral imagination. But this is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. This is the Battle of the Bulge. This is Dunkirk. This is 9-11. We have to rise to this occasion we have the tools, we have the solutions, we know what to do. We lack the requisite political will. Political will for anyone who doubts that we as human beings have the capacity to rise above our limitations and transcend the difficulties we now face. Remember that political will is itself a renewable resource. Al Gore, if you're listening to this on day three, you can hear him speak in sessions at 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Central European time, and you'll be able to catch up with those sessions on the website wf.ch Davos Agenda. Also today will be another former presidential hopeful, John Kerry, appointed by President Biden to be his climate envoy as he brings the US back into the Paris Climate Agreement. John Kerry is speaking at a session at 4.15pm Central European time. Ryan, from your perspective there in New York, how important do you think is this change of US policy on climate change? 
Uh, it's incredibly important. We should bear in mind that a lot of local and state government and American business and NGO interests were trying to do the right thing during the last four years. So the US isn't starting from zero, but obviously the US still remains the world's superpower. And some countries won't go further and faster as scientists tell us we need to do until the US is on board. So the administration has made the important first step of re-signing the Paris Climate Agreement, but I and my colleagues have spoken to around 25 different climate ministers and other senior officials on six continents over the last couple of weeks. And they're very clear, just resigning the Paris Agreement is not enough to win back their trust or to get the job done. So they are all looking to John Kerry to work with all of his uh, domestic agencies to get climate legislation passed that goes well beyond the Paris Climate Agreement. Well, let's hear from John Kerry now. This is him speaking at a forum event towards the end of last year. I know Joe Biden believes this. It's not enough just to rejoin Paris for the United States. It's not enough for us to just do the minimum of what Paris requires. Uh, I had the pleasure of negotiating Paris for the United States and being there in those euphoric moments. But I also remember saying to people, at the end of the gaveling in of the agreement, nobody should leave here believing that we have held the Earth's temperature to two degrees centigrade or that we've even created the capacity to guarantee that. We haven't. The best that we've done is send a message to the marketplace that 190 countries plus are going to all move in the same direction to try to deal with the climate crisis. And that means that people who allocate capital have an opportunity to look at the largest market the world has ever had, 196 countries, all doing the same thing, all trying to move to change their energy policy and deal with climate crisis. And that's the biggest market the world's ever known, folks. It's a four and a half billion to five billion person market today. It's gonna to go up to 9 billion in the next 30 years. And the private sector now is beginning to really see this. So at Davos, obviously, you've got these political leaders, but also business leaders. And one of the sessions today is about something called Mission Possible. And to explain what that is, this is Dominic Warre, who's a managing director of the World Economic Forum. Heavy industry, so things like uh, steel and cement and chemicals and aviation and transport and shipping, has been calculated uh, to contribute about a third of greenhouse gas emissions. So if one can get these key heavy industry sectors on a pathway to that net zero reduction by 2050 and on a good, a good bit of that pathway by 2030, then that deals with a nice chunk of those emissions. And that's exactly what the Mission Possible uh, um, initiative is doing. It's working with uh, leading CEOs across those seven or so industry sectors to create um, pathways and investment uh, plans to get on that net zero uh, trajectory. We launched this at the Climate Action Summit with the United Nations Secretary General in September 2019 um, with about 30 companies and um, it's grown now to about uh, 300 or so and rising. The aim is for a net zero trajectory and to be on that pathway by 2030. Um, and of course it's quite difficult to do if you're just one company. You need to work with others in the sector but you also need to work with governments to create the right policies to accelerate scaling and with the financial community to get the investments and the financial products in place. So it's, it's immediately a multi-stakeholder public-private effort. Uh, we would expect that some of the sectors which are moving faster 
than others can certainly have a pretty detailed plan by COP, um, and that might well include aviation, steel, and shipping. I think it's critical that those sort of industries and the big players are taking action and are being mobilized to take action, because I think for a long time, there are sections of populations across the world that have internalized guilt about their own personal behavior. And we can all take personal responsibility. Greta Thunberg shows us that, and that should be happening. But until you can get those much larger blocks lined up, until the more advanced economies can set an example to China so that China does not replicate what Western economies have done through all of its new development lending, its one belt, one road project, we just are not going to achieve the scale of change that we need quick enough. So it is an all hands on deck situation and the biggest hands have to obviously put in the biggest contribution. And those are the sort of industries we've just heard from. And there's another initiative that Dominic Warre from the forum um, can take us through now. And this is about supply chains. If you are a shipping company, um, not only is it the ships that need to have uh, clean engines and, and produce less pollution, um, but also it could be quite attractive if you're a consumer goods company that is looking to ship your products around the world and is looking for net zero uh, transportation. So in fact, you could be quite attractive to um, other companies in your supply chain if you present yourself as a net zero uh, transporter and so on and so on across many sectors. And this means that you can start to create initiatives um, across different companies through supply chains and the opportunity space could be quite big if you look at many different types of supply chains around the world. That's what the report focuses on. And it illustrates, again, how the economy is starting to join itself up to look at how we can collectively uh, uh, tackle greenhouse gas emissions. And listeners can hear more about that initiative if they listen to yesterday's Radio Davos, where we heard from Rich Lesser, CEO of Boston Consulting Group, which co-authored the report on supply chains. Now, talking of companies looking at the climate impact of their supply chains, here's the head of IKEA, which is going climate positive, it says, by 2030, as well as generating renewable energy and using more recycled materials. IKEA is trying to make its products longer lasting, so you no longer need to throw out your Billy bookcase every time you move. Chief Executive Jesper Brodin. We are currently testing secondhand and buyback uh, leasing in many ways of finding new ways of interacting with our customers. On one hand, we're doing that because if we don't do it, somebody else will do it. <laughs> and already today and since quite long, secondhand has always been part of the market. Um, actually, if you go to any sort of eBay in any market, you will find that when it comes to furniture, uh, IKEA is probably top on the list uh, there already. But we want to stimulate that, firstly, by making sure our products last longer and we understand the secondhand nature. But then we have started to, to do different tests um, in our markets. Um, and I think one of the most important one is that we have um, rebuilt our stores and our as-is corner where we actually resell products. So we take back and we resell customer products and uh, products that we used in our own showrooms to make sure that nothing goes to waste. Um, and the interest is phenomenal. We are still trying to figure out how to make it okay from a profitability point of view, but we're quite sure that we will figure it out together by just being in it and uh, testing it uh, in, in the future. An old Billy bookcase would uh, more be designed for, so to say, being assembled once. Now we're looking into solutions where you can basically uh, move with it, sell it, um, pass it on many times without uh, the risk of destroying the 
the board or the fittings in it. Head of IKEA, Jesper Brodin, who's speaking alongside John Kerry at a session on climate action at 4.15pm Central European time today, Wednesday. That's big business. What about big finance? Mark Carney is speaking on a couple of panels today and we'll have an interview with him shortly in this episode. But here he is, Mark Carney, the former Bank of England governor who now works for the UK government and the United Nations on finance and climate change, speaking at a forum event a couple of months ago. 126 governments have now committed to net zero, including three global giants, China, Japan and South Korea, in the last few weeks. And more and more countries are recognizing that green stimulus is essential. Building a sustainable future will be capital intensive after a period when there's been too little investment. It will be job heavy when unemployment is soaring. It's what the world needs for its future and it's what we all need right now. There's now 500 major companies that have science-based targets, and there's a further 500 in the pipeline. By Glasgow, net zero transition plans will become the norm for large companies. Private finance will fund the initiatives and innovation of these plans, provided that is, provided that private finance has the necessary information and the tools and markets. And that's why our objective for COP26 is to build the framework so that every financial decision can take climate change into account. The world of finance used to just be put money in one end, get more money out the other end. Do you think there's anything changing here as Mark Carney would have us believe? Uh, Yes, I think Mark Carney really is the most respected figure in this movement uh, in global finance. And it's absolutely essential that this occurs. Now, one of the problems that we have is that public finance alone will not deliver us the sort of deeply horizontal, huge scale change that we need at the timeline that we need. So we can't do this without private finance. One of the related problems is that every major economy has a different approach to the sort of issues Mark Carney is talking about. So banks themselves face a regulatory mess. It's very confusing for investors trying to rate the risks or make the green choices that uh, they might want to make as investors. So I think we're only in the middle of a very long journey here. I've seen that some of the European institutional banks, European Central Bank, European Investment Bank, they're also leaders here. Um, But the Chinese development banks have a very long way to go. So I think that the, the World Economic Forum itself deserves a lot of credit for helping reorient major banks towards these sort of green outcomes. Uh, And one of the final challenges I'd point out is that these banks have started to ramp up their green investments, but we're in a gray zone now. They haven't really necessarily got out of all of their brown project financing, let's say. So we're in a situation now where the world's banks are doing a lot of good, but they're still involved in a lot of harm. So it's an unfinished project. Ryan, I put the same question to the World Economic Forum's Dominic Ware about whether finance will start taking action on climate change and he said yes he thinks they will because the risks of climate change to them and to their assets is just now so apparent and so great here's dominic warwick if you are um an institutional investor with what they call fiduciary responsibility you've got to look after this money so that it can deliver long-term returns for pension funds you would get worried about these risks And therefore, you want to put your money into places where there are less risks. 
um, or in fact encourage the economy to uh, face less risks due to climate change. Uh, yeah, I do think there's been a, a genuine change. Um, and uh, why is because of the risks becoming very apparent. If you look at just this last year, 2020, um, there was a record 29 uh, tropical storms in the Atlantic, uh, 12 of which hit the eastern seaboard Gulf of Mexico. Um, there were so many, 29, that um, the meteorologists ran out of alphabet letters to name them. That's the first time that's ever happened. Um, and seven of those storms that landed were over $1 billion events, in fact, about $14 billion of damage. If you're in insurance or reinsurance business um, and you're looking to pension funds to look after you, this is quite a serious um, issue. The uh, wildfires on, in Western US was an over, I think it was a NOAA, which is the um, administration in the US, which looks at um, atmosphere and oceans. I think they quantified that at uh, uh, about $12 billion or more, the damage there. Um, and these stack up over the years. It's not just 2020. You know, for the last two decades, these costs are rising. So um, you can see why that there's quite some interest to try and mitigate those risks. And you mitigate those risks by looking to invest in the solutions that will get us to an economy in the future um, that has avoided dangerous climate change. These things have really come to the fore in the financial community and it has tipped um, into, a, into a different discussion and it won't go back. Right at the beginning of this week, we heard the World Economic Forum's chairman Klaus Schwab saying 2021 will be a, could be a turning point for humanity. And one of the reasons for that was the pandemic, but another potentially even bigger reason for it is COP26, which is the conference of the parties to the UN Climate Change Pact happening in Glasgow in the UK in December. Are you optimistic, Ryan, that we've had a lot of COPs? I went to, I went to COP7, I think it was my first, it might have been COP6, we're going back a long way, and not that much in terms of action has happened. Is this a turning point, do you think? I am optimistic. I think some of the stars are aligning. We saw the big East Asian economies really make a leap forward at the end of 2020 in terms of their commitments. The Biden administration is clearly making the same sort of commitments. And Antonio Guterres, who's running for a second term at the UN, he's finally putting all his political capital behind this. And when you add that onto Boris Johnson and Britain needing to carve out a new role on the global stage now that they've left the EU, uh, they've decided they're putting their chips on climate action as well. So there is just so much weight towards action. We might not get everything that we need, but we are going to be in a much better place at the end of 2021 than we were at the start of 2020. On a slightly less positive note, like I say, I, I covered some of those cops way back and I remember it being the tail end of Bill Clinton's administration. And they failed to get an agreement and George Bush pulled out of what was then the Kyoto Protocol. But the problem was for Al Gore at the time, he was faced with a Congress that he knew just wouldn't accept the kind of measures the EU was pushing the US administration to do. Do you think that landscape's changed at all? From, from afar, it doesn't really look like it has. It's a very finely balanced situation. I agree that it doesn't matter what John Kerry goes around saying around the world if he can't back it up with funding and legislation through Congress. I believe some form of climate bill will pass, but when you can be held up by literally one or two senators with that wafer-thin Democratic majority, 
um, it's clear that some people are going to be disappointed with what comes out of the Congress. So I think people need to manage their expectations. But it is such a dramatic situation that the sort of compromise that people should be engaging in cannot be one where they just accept that the US isn't a global leader. The pressure has to be on that the US is a leader, not merely catching up uh, the ground that it's lost. Great. Thanks. Ryan Heath of Politico, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Davos. Thank you, Robin. It was a pleasure. Now to today's interview. Mark Carney, former governor of the Bank of England and before that of the Bank of Canada, is on a mission to prevent climate catastrophe by mobilising big finance. In the run-up to COP26, the climate summit in the UK in December, Mark Carney's advising Boris Johnson on just that. And he's also UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance. Now, financial journalists are taught on day one that markets are not there to be nice. They're driven by two things, greed and fear. So I asked Mark Carney why he thought they might now be motivated to act on climate change. Okay, well, let me take your fear and greed and turn them into risk and opportunity um, and, uh, and make a basic point, which is climate change is the existential risk. Uh, if we don't address it, um, uh, fundamental uh, challenges to human life and livelihoods, uh, our economy, but also our, our ecosystem uh, at, at its most fundamental level. If you turn that around, if you're solving an existential risk, if you're part of the solution, not part of the problem, it is a tremendous opportunity. And it, if, again, to use your words, turns into the greed or the opportunity uh, part of the equation. So that is that is the basic point. And what we see to make it more tangible is now is that finance, whether it's investors, uh, whether it's people lending, whether it's uh, investing in it for our pensions, um, are focused on there are activities and assets that formerly were valuable that will not be valuable uh, in a net zero world. In other words, they will become stranded assets uh, because they produce too much carbon, because they are part of the problem. Conversely, there are technologies and activities that are part of the solutions and they will be tremendously valuable. And so what's happening right now is a shift away from those risks, that fear, and towards uh, greed in your words, uh, but those opportunities. Uh, And that's a huge, huge uh, shift in capital. It will be measured in trillions of dollars every year for decades in order to address um, this, uh, this challenge. So tell us about your work on getting companies to disclose their climate impacts, the task force on climate related financial disclosures. Could you tell us why that's so important and how it's going to work? Well, it's fundamental. Uh, We need information. What gets measured gets managed. And so you start from having information, not just about a company's climate footprint today, how many greenhouse gases they're emitting, but really how they intend to manage that going forward, uh, both from a risk and from an opportunity perspective, uh, and provide investors, lenders, and all stakeholders with the information to see whether, again, a company is part of the solution or, or part of the problem. Do they have a plan to manage? So there's something called the TCFD, Uh, Unfortunately, Davos is full of acronyms. What it basically means is companies providing that information, which historically they have not done. Uh, It really started five years ago, including here. Um, It's made tremendous progress. There's over 140 trillion US dollars of capital behind it. In other words, companies or investors and banks and others who want this information. The UK has made this a priority for COP not just to rely on the private sector to do this, but actually for the public sector to now take the progress that has been made, 
um, and to make this type of disclosure mandatory uh, across the major economies. So investors can compare, they can invest where the solutions are uh, and preserve and, and, and manage risks uh, where the problems uh, will become. So it's fundamental. Uh, there's tremendous uh, progress on it. It's necessary, but much more also has to happen. Could you give us some idea of where we are at at the moment with that? Because you were putting these metrics together last year, as I understand it. Are they now being used? Are certain jurisdictions making it mandatory? Is it already having an impact on where investors are putting their money? Where are we? It, uh, the answer to all of those is yes. Um, uh, there's more to go. Um, 12, over 1,200 of the world's largest companies are reporting against TCFD metrics, uh, and that is across G20 countries. Um, so there is a lot of this reporting, um, but it, it needs to broaden out and it needs to deepen in terms of the quality. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second, investors are using this information. In fact, they want more because they find it valuable. They want it for more companies and they want more of this type of information. Thirdly, in terms of companies making it mandatory, uh, New Zealand, uh, Switzerland, the United Kingdom have all announced to make it mandatory. The European Union has a broader process about sustainability disclosure, which includes this type of information, which will be legislated and therefore mandatory. Uh, the, and uh, as part of COP, what we're looking for from countries is to establish pathways to make it mandatory over the next few years so that this is consistent disclosure around the world. One other point, if I may, which is the world's biggest reporting body, an independent body called the IFRS, which oversees financial reporting, is also launching a project for this to cover 140 countries for climate-related financial disclosures, the TCFD type of disclosure. So listen, there's lots of progress, um, but it's all implementation. We need to, we need to accelerate that further uh, and make sure that it gets across the finish line. Do you think the general public has reason to trust big companies when they, when they report their climate activities, uh, their, their emissions or their plans, why should the person in the street believe what they're hearing? Well, I think it's a different order of magnitude. One thing is nice statements about uh, commitments to sustainability or green or, or very selective reporting of information, which shows only a sliver of, a, of the picture of a much broader picture of what a company is doing. Um, and I think there is grounds for skepticism, healthy skepticism around that. It's an entirely different thing, what we're, we've just been talking about, which is comprehensive disclosure of all the aspects of climate related risks and having them in formal company reports, that's the key thing, in their main uh, financial reports, which brings a whole level of scrutiny, uh, professionalism and liability for the companies when they actually do it. So that's the reason to <clears throat> move from selective words, if you will, to hard facts and, and perspective and, uh, and, and perspective impacts and do it in a consistent way across jurisdictions. So there is that trust. Now, it's not just the trust though, it's also what, um, it's also scrutinized very much by those who provide money for companies, investors, banks, others, um, who need this information and will make real decisions on it. And that brings another level of scrutiny to make sure that these numbers are right and are followed through. You've talked about something called the tragedy of the horizon. And I believe this means there are too many short-term investment decisions made. If I'm getting that wrong, maybe you could explain it to me. Well, the, the issue with climate change is um, there are two issues, big issues in environmental economics. One is tragedy of the commons. In other words, think of common fishing on the high seas and nobody takes individual responsibility 
responsibility for it. So collectively, we all take too much and ultimately destroy the fishing stocks or overgrazing on land is another example of the tragedy of the commons. The tragedy of the horizon is that if you think of the horizon of, um, of the normal business cycle uh, is measured in, in several years uh, of the political cycle or four year political cycle, um, uh, regulators, uh, central banks often look out two, three years. All of those horizons are shorter than the horizon over which the truly catastrophic impacts of climate change that are building today will be manifest. In other words, when the physical impacts will come. And of course, by the time those physical impacts come in scale and frequency, it's too late to address it. Um, so you need to bring the future to the present in order to take actions today. That's, and you need, that's how to solve the tragedy of rising. So part of how you solve that is to have the type of disclosure which is forward looking from companies to say, what will happen to your business if environmental regulations tighten in a way that would be consistent with a sub two degree world? What would happen to your business if catastrophic climate change happens? Um, it's something central banks can also do with respect to their management, uh, their oversight of banks and uh, insurers, and how do their business models work as climate change progresses? All of those activities bring the future to the present and then the financial markets are very effective at getting ready for the future if they have some window to the future. Last point, if I may, the other way to address the tragedy of the horizon is actually for climate policy. So think prices on carbon, regulations on um, uh, internal combustion engine cars, certain fuel mixes, types of generation. The more credible that regulation is, the more you can see into the future, the level of regulation that will come, the more the financial system will prepare today for that future tomorrow, and the smoother the adjustment will be. So by bringing the future to the present, or having a window to the future is a better way to put it, a window to the future, uh, markets can uh, operate as they should, and we can break the tragedy of the horizon. Do you see a way that the, the price, the cost of emitting greenhouse gas emissions can be embedded into the price of things we buy as individuals or things that are traded in, in vast quantities. Because at, at the moment, you can buy consumer items very cheaply that maybe are made in a place that's fueled by coal power. Is, is there a way to, to actually embed that price in so that we're actually paying the real price for the cost of that item? Well, there's several ways to do it. Um, and you're absolutely right. So if you look across the world, the average carbon price is around three or $4 per ton. Um, there's only about 20% of the world uh, economic activity that is covered by some form of carbon price. And that carbon price itself averages about $15. So if you just do the maths, it ends up at around three per ton. Um, and to give a sense of what's needed in terms of an incentive to make the types of adjustment to get us onto that one and a half degree uh, horizon, it's something in the order of $75 to $100 per ton would be required. Now, of course, lots of other policies, lots of other regulations, lots of other things can help, but we're a long way from where the carbon price needs to be in order to get there. Okay, first point. So uh, broader carbon pricing and higher carbon pricing is required. But remember as well, it matters where the carbon price is going to be in the future, if it's credible that it's going to be. So for example, in Canada, I'm speaking to you from Canada, they have legislator are legislating, so the carbon price is $170 by 2030. Well, 
people will start adjusting to that today. Businesses will start adjusting and that's what pulls forward. So that's one way, having the carbon price to get it in and, and, and we start to make those decisions based on the new carbon price today and in the future. The second way is a little more subtle, which is that a number of companies, including a number of companies at Davos are committing to be net zero. Um, in other words, they wanna manage their emissions down so they are net zero themselves. And when they look at their emissions, they don't just look at the emissions from their direct activities, but they're to look at the emissions from the power they use, whether it's in their head office or where they're producing maybe somewhere in the supply chain around the world. And also for a number of them, what are called scope three emissions. So what are the emissions of their suppliers and of the consumers using the product uh, the end product, do they, are there big emissions there? Um, think about automobile manufacturers, for example, um, and uh, the cost of, or the emissions that come from driving uh, uh, petrol cars and uh, uh, internal combustion cars. All of that disclosure then changes the incentives um, across the economy to reduce those emissions. So there's a formal price incentive, but this dynamic which we're seeing, and I think will accelerate over the, in the run-up to the Glasgow COP, of companies committing to net zero and then having to put that in place, investors and stakeholders and consumers, employees watching them and seeing whether or not they achieve those objectives, that changes the price, if you will, of carbon. And that will that's what is needed to make that this, these types of economy-wide uh, adjustments in order to get to where we need to be. And are you optimistic that this change can happen fast enough? The issue is um, with climate is that uh, there is very little time. There is limited carbon budget. We've left it very late. Um, and so there is very good momentum. It is accelerating. It needs to accelerate further. And, it need, and these uh, commitments need to be followed through. So I think uh, the vigilance on it and the intention and the ambition is absolutely right. Uh, I think the best news though at this stage is that uh, we are in a much stronger position than we were even 12 months ago in terms of the focus on these issues, but we need to be in an even stronger position 12 months from now and in the, in the, in the subsequent years. So it's a, it's a critical year. Uh, for climate. Mark Carney, thanks for joining us on Radio Davos. Radio Davos. Thank you, Robin. Pleasure. Remember, you can follow the Davos Agenda live and on catch-up at wef.ch slash Davos Agenda, where you can also hear all episodes of Radio Davos as they land. And you can subscribe to get it as a podcast on our Great Reset feed. Just search either Radio Davos or The Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts. Radio Davos is a podcast from the World Economic Forum. It was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with additional reporting by Charlotte Beale, Anna Bruce Lockhart and Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. A big thanks to Ryan Heath, Senior Editor at Politico. I'll be back tomorrow with a new co-host, Alison Chantel, Co-Editor-in-Chief of Business Insider. Until then, from me, Robin Pomeroy, at the World Economic Forum's Davos Agenda, goodbye.